Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Margaret Wishingrad, to our show today. Margaret is the founder and CEO of Three Wishes, a company that produces a line of healthy breakfast cereals made from high quality ingredients. Before starting Three Wishes, Margaret was working in advertising and noticed a gap in the market for breakfast cereals that were both healthy and delicious when she was looking for some options for her son as a first time mom. Fueled by her passion for healthy eating and entrepreneurship, she set out to create a cereal that would meet this need. Margaret spent two years developing Three Wishes, working with a range of taste testers to ensure that it met her criteria for being high in protein, low in sugar, and gluten and grain free. In this interview, Margaret talks about the challenges and setbacks she faced when launching Three Wishes from validating that idea to getting co-packers to producing the first batch of cereal, which is no easy feat. She also shares how to get retailers invested and excited about your product, run a successful omni-channel business, and create awareness with the brand while being super scrappy. Despite launching their brand during the pandemic, Margaret was able to achieve significant growth in many creative ways, which we'll talk about, and grow this to a multi-million dollar brand while also being a mom to two young kids. We have a lot to learn from Margaret today. Welcome to the show, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm a big fan of you and the brand. And I know we briefly talked about this before jumping on the interview, but just being your ability to be real and vulnerable about what it takes to build this nationwide brand, I really admire. And I'd actually love to start with a higher level question. And I heard you say in another interview that starting a brand, especially you know a successful brand like Three Wishes, isn't necessarily rocket science. So tell me what you think are maybe some of the key attributes that you have to have for anyone who's listening and who wants to start and build a successful brand. Yeah, I like to remind myself I'm no I'm no Steve Jobs or I'm not reinventing. I, mean, I am reinventing cereal, I guess. But I think as long as you've identified that it's something that needs a solution and it's something you're passionate about, that's something actually I speak about a lot is the need to have the passion behind whatever you're doing. I mean, you could be the most passionate janitor and have an incredible business, right? It's not It's not just – it's having focus, passion, really understanding that you've created a solution for an actual problem I think is a big part of it. And then you know, something you mentioned, showing up every day. That is exactly it. Waking up and going, all right, I'm going to tackle it again today. I got 3,000 no's yesterday. Today is the day to get the yes. That's been a big part of it. So just like passion, passion, hard work. And the rest kind of uh, figures itself out. It's true. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like there's a lot of women. I get a lot of inbound of just people who want to chat and start businesses. And they're always trying to figure out that right time for when they're ready. And I'm like, there's never going to be that right time, right? Like, it's like, no, kind of learn on the fly. I mean, at least from my own experience with my business, I don't know if you felt that same way. 100%. Yeah. But that's exactly it. And I think it's similar for me. My comparison is always children. You're never necessarily ready to have children. You might be more ready at a certain age or financial point, but you're never really prepared for the experience and what it's going to turn into. But then it turns into like the greatest gift of your life and, and being able to have it. And I think similarly with having your own business, is it a complete roller coaster and is it super difficult some days? Sure. But the highs are so high and the freedom is so liberating. The lows, they get crazy too. So it's just, it's pretty similar. It's as long as you have the right attitude and you stick to it, you just ride the waves. You know, I'm always curious about this because I think attitude and like having that optimism, even when you have those really tough days are such a superpower. Because I'm always thinking like, what allows me and I'm still very early in my journey to still show up despite like having a few consecutive hard days or whatnot. What do you think has allowed you to have that mindset? Do you think you've always had that as a kid? Or where does that come from? I think it's innate. It takes me back to a really random fun story from a million years ago. I was on my first trip traveling with my then boyfriend, now husband, Ian, and we were driving in Italy. It's like, 
peak romance. We're driving, having the best time of our lives, our first trip together, and we get sideswiped by a, like a truck on the highway in Italy, not having a single lick of the Italian language. So we pull over, and I remember Ian is like frantic, and the other guy's panicked, and I had this calm in this moment. I was like, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to follow whatever the protocol is. And having the ability to be calm and navigate through these like weird, stormy, unexpected situations, I think are the the superpower in a way. And knowing, okay, something's not working, instead of freaking out that it's not working, it's immediately pivot to figuring out a solution and really getting focused versus getting frantic and all over the place. And I think that's the big divide between those that end up making it and becoming su- successful in their businesses versus those that just get I guess it's a similar analogy to swimming in the ocean. You could either let that wave take you or you can ride it. You can go under it and you can get back up. And so it's a very similar thing. So I think the calm and children teach you that too, but that's been a big thing for me. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so simple, but I, you know, I actually haven't heard anybody say it in that way, but I think being the calm person, especially when you're leading a team, you can't allow everyone to see the chaos that's like above where you can see everything. But if you're able to kind of be calm, that's when you can make the best decisions and really show up. And like you said, the journey is long and that also allows you to be more sustainable and happier day to day, or else you're literally going to have such a miserable experience because every day is going to get eaten by it. Yeah. And people do. And they're like, my mental health is tough. And there's so many layers we can get into, which we'll get into when we go deeper in your story. But I'm actually curious, you know, I was reading more about you and you mentioned you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Your now husband was an, is an entrepreneur, but you never really thought of yourself as one, at least when you were younger. Did your family have any expectations of what they wanted you to become, whether it was be an entrepreneur or don't be an entrepreneur? Most of my family being entrepreneurs, I think the natural inclination is you want to protect your children from uncertainty. And you kind of like the, as an immigrant, it was, you go and you become a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer. Those are certain jobs. You know, you're going to get paid. You know, you're going to be okay. And I am the complete opposite. I'm just like, that's, that is not me. I thrive in the uncertainty. Maybe I don't know. And for me, it's always been, whether it's been people I've dated or my husband that I married, I've loved it. I've craved that need to like build something and prove yourself. And for me, I never imagined that I would be an entrepreneur. I was used to family businesses and being maybe a number two in a company. That was like always something that was was normal to me. But when I met my husband, I really watched him so naturally just be this leader and, and know how to speak to people. And I picked up a lot of that from him over time and applying this like confidence to myself. Because the biggest thing is if you're confident in whatever you're selling or doing, that's more than half the battle. So once I got comfortable with that, I think it was a lot easier for me to say like, okay, I got this. I could do it. And watching all these people firsthand become entrepreneurs, I think has also really helped in giving me the courage of like, okay, it's going to suck some days. And there are some days where you're going to cry and you're going to be okay. And you're going to give yourself the 10 minutes to sulk and you're going yeah. to be fine. And just allowing that I think has been really helpful. And you mentioned, and I think that's really critical, like building that confidence for yourself. Cause very similar to you, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. I kind of saw all the highs and lows. I married an entrepreneur and that was really cool to see him like someone who's not your family run a business and be in his superpower. But I also had to build that confidence in myself. But how did you kind of build that and feel comfortable to kind of take that leap? I think it's practice. I go back to the first like 100 investor calls I did in the early stages of the brand. And there were calls where I was like, Ian, can you speak? I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like I was shaking. I remember I was like, oh my God. And now I'm going back and I'm thinking, wow, what a fool. I was here pitching this opportunity to investors of, instead of thinking about it of like, hey, I'm giving the opportunity to ride a rocket ship. In my head, I'm like, oh, I'm begging for money. So I think a lot of it is how you position it, how you place yourself or your value is a big part of it. So I think it's practice. It's becoming really competent in my craft, which comes with time and experience. Yep. And I think the passion was the largest thing. Anyone we meet, whether it's a buyer, I think all, everyone's a c- consumer, right? Whether they're a buyer that we're selling the product to, to their retail locations, whether it's investor, we're selling what we're doing at every point of the day. And so for me, having the passion of why I created this, why I continue to grow it, why I do what I do is a, the biggest part of it. People sign up for most of the time when they when they take on an investment or a product into their stores, they're not necessarily always taking the product, but majority of the time they are. But it's really the person driving, you know, steering the ship and, and driving the force. And 
that's been a big reason for us to really like step up and be confident in what we have. So yeah, I think practice and all those other little things that you build into it. Yeah, I love that. And I think you just showing up and doing these investor calls, even when you were scared, is like how you build that muscle, right? Like you're now able to speak confidently. It's funny, I actually co-hosted an event last week here in LA and I had to like speak about stuff. And I remember years ago going to events and having to like stand up and do intros. And I'm like, why do I get nervous? But I would still do it. I still don't know why I would be nervous. And this was the first time I had no issue speaking. It sounds so simple, but I was just like, oh, it's because I've been talking so much and I've been putting myself in the situation. So that just reminded me because some people think like, oh, look at Margaret. She can do this. She raised incredible money with investors. But it's like, we all have had the times where we don't know what we're doing. And that's how you learn. And that's just how you build the muscle. So I just love that example that you gave. So I know you, you know, prior to starting Three Wishes, you had an advertising agency with your husband and you worked with a ton of brands. So I'd love to hear maybe what were some of the biggest learnings you had kind of being on that side of the business that you took away to now your Three Wishes business? We got to see really two different spectrums of how businesses are built or operate. And one side is when you work with really large clients with very big budgets (laughs) and you see one, you see how much they spend and how hard it is for them, but you also see how much they waste. The other part is when you work with really small clients and they have a whole lot to accomplish and prove with very small budgets, you learn to get really scrappy. That's where the best lessons came from is seeing these incredible operators that were able to talk about their innovation or position themselves to retailers. And I think there were a lot of little tidbits we took from that. So that was one one big part. And then the other part is just that's another muscle we've had to work on that we have in-house and it's a wonderful competency is the advertising and marketing side of it. We've had to do it for other clients. So constantly thinking of creative ideas and removing ourselves from just day-to-day business ops because I'm so entrenched in just, oh, this truck didn't show up or I need to problem solve this. Sometimes stepping back and going, hey, what would I do for that client that used to pay us to do this? And apply those principles to our own business. Those have been some of the really good lessons. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's a muscle that I'm learning because it's so easy to just be in the nitty gritty of the operations and like marketing is the engine you need to get the awareness out there. So I'm always trying to pull myself out, but it's something that I continue to work on. It's very tough, especially because I lean into operations. It's very easy for me. But yeah, marketing content is huge for my business. But I love that that is a core competency in you because it's a huge advantage. And, you know, I'm curious, we always think like one side, you know, being on the agency side, you're always having certain ideas about, you know, starting a product or vice versa. Was there anything surprising? Because it's such a different life from going from agency to building a brand. Oh, and it's a complete grass is greener. You like yeah. when you work with clients and you see, so when you're on the service side and you're the agency, you're like, oh, I'm working so hard for this client and look at all the money they're making. I could be doing that. And then on the other side, when you are the client and there's an agency, you're like, oh, that's so easy. They're just a service. So the grass is always greener. <laughs> I think it just comes down to what what you enjoy doing most. And for me, I really love operating. So when I was at the agency, was I involved in different parts of the creative parts? Yeah, sure. But for me, I really loved running the agency and building the agency. And I think similarly here, I love operating the brand and helping that grow every day. So it's just, I think it's also just like your appetite for risk. And Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no prescription to be like, no, you're really good at just doing service or you're really good at doing product and having a consumer packaged good business. But it goes back to that passion. For me, I was passionate about food. I was passionate about healthy food and something that I really think changes a category that needed it. So I I love this side. Yeah, no, it's fun. And so I want to kind of go into... Three Wishes, which is your cereal brand, cereal brand. I know when the idea came, I believe your son was six at the time. You and your husband didn't have any quote unquote food experience in the industry. So where did the idea for kind of launching the cereal brand come to mind? And did you have any hesitations of getting involved in something that you have no experience with, especially cereal? So my son was six months old, so he was a baby. And so one of those first things that they recommend for little pincer skill development was cereal. If you think about little kids in strollers, you always see them with a little cup of Cheerios or whatever it is, or puffs. And for me, I realized that the category, because I haven't consumed it personally in so many years because of how 
crappy cereals gotten for you. And so I looked at, I revisited it again through my child's eyes and realized, wow, there's been no real innovation in this category. You start to wonder why, right? Why did a big three or four dominating brands in the category, why have they not set out to create a solution? And then you think about how do you create that? What is that? Are people looking for it? So we did it in a few steps, understanding, one, am I the only one feeling this problem? Or are there other parents, grandparents, just single adults that all missed the category. So from our agency side, it would have been laying out the strategy, right? And understanding who you're catering to and who's this demographic. And so spoke to a ton of people and everyone's like, yeah, you're right. We stopped consuming cereal or yeah, there's nothing in the market. And we're like, okay, that validates our idea of we need to create a solution for this. So then we take that next step of what does a modern day take on cereal look like? And for us, that was creating something that was high in protein because we felt like for breakfast, there was no protein in cereal to taking that sugar way down because cereals are really just desserts that you shouldn't be having for breakfast. So bringing the sugar really down and then figuring out why is cereal so nutrient deficient. And that's because it's made of grains and inherently grains just don't have nutrition, especially overly processed grains. And so we decided to go high protein, low sugar gluten and grain free. And those were our three wishes for the category. And then three wishes is also a nod to our last name, which is wish and grad. So it was the three <laughs> of us then. So it was the three wishes, had three wishes and made three wishes. So once we validated, hey, this is our idea, the next step was R&D for us. And that took us two years. You start to realize how difficult it is to create something with so much protein to experience and have the same flavor and soaking and all of the things people love about the nostalgic experience of cereal. So we really set out to recreate a lot of those things that people know and love. And then once that was done, then for me, and that, by the way, was the hardest part was the R&D. I remember calling Ian the day we had our pilot product finished. And I was like, we're finally done. We're done. It's here. And he's like, we haven't even launched it. What are you talking about? And I'm like, What do you, I thought it was a crazy journey, but you start to realize they call cereal the red ocean because it's so hard to succeed. Like so many brands set out to accomplish and try to tackle cereal. It's dominated by three big companies that have billions of dollars that really are aggressive. So I think what it took to break through was the right product market fit, which for us was taste and health and price point and where it's distributed. And with all of those things, we were fortunate enough to become a leader in, in our category. And so that's been a really fun part of the journey, but that's that's what Three Wishes is. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds 
in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening listening. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's interesting because you said two years of R&D. I have a food product, but not definitely not cereal. I know how hard it is to find the right co-packers and for you like food scientists. I mean, I'm sure there's so many things I'm not even aware of. So kind of where did you start? Because as a small brand, no one wants to work with you. You're kind of like trying to sell them the vision. So what were some of those stories, maybe in the earlier days of you trying to find the right people to do this, the R&D that goes into it? Yeah. So it was completely a no 10 people that no 10 people. So we've called some friends in the industry and we're like, hey, we have an idea. Do you have any food scientists that know these types of products? And we call them and we try to get another one. And you just, you're just dialing and you're going until you finally hit somebody. Then you then you meet the right people. And from there, you start to develop the product. Now, the next piece was how do we find the right manufacturing solution? And it is a complete Goldilocks. It yeah. is, this one's too big. This one's too small. This one won't take my call. This one has ridiculous minimums. And what it really takes is similar back to the passion and back to this, having the ability to sell someone in on your dream was finding the right perfect size co-man and saying, hey, I know we're probably a little small right now. Give us the chance. I promise you it's going to be worthwhile. And just like bringing them along on that journey with you. Um, and that's what happened. It was over a year and change. I was working with this one co-man to finally crack and go, okay, well, we'll do the product for you. They're our co-man to this day. I love that. And I think some people don't realize like how you're literally are dialing for dollars, like whether it's tapping in your network or I remember like Googling online and literally just calling and talking to anyone who take my call and asking them questions because I didn't know anything and they would kind of help me or direct me. So it's just, it's definitely not glamorous, but you can figure out the right person or the right next step if you just continue to push. And I wish there was a directory for this that would have made everyone's life so much easier, but it just, that's not how this industry works. And I remember, I mean, there were so many people that I'd call and there was one guy I remember calling. And I'm like, hey, do you have this? He's like, sweetheart, that's a cute hobby and a cute idea of yours, but good luck. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm going to prove you wrong, sweetheart. And (laughs) it was just really fun to kind of go and figure it out. But I get it. I look back at it. I was 26, 27 years old, and I'm here selling this grandiose vision of what I was, what is my brand today. But back then, it just takes the right people that are going to give you the right opportunity. But also, as important as it is for these people to vet you, it's important for you to vet these people as well and make sure anybody, I mean, this brand is my baby. So anybody that touches this brand on a daily basis, I want to make sure they're a part of our family and a part of this brand. And so being super selective, whether it be investors or manufacturing partners or employees, all of those things are super, super important. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think sometimes in the beginning, and this conversation could even be similar to investors, but like you're so, at least for me, when I was trying to find the right co-packer, I was so just like wanting anybody to work with us because we were so new and I was getting so many rejections. We ended up finding somebody. We did like a quick, luckily it was just for a beta, so a small run and it was horrible. If I just listened to my gut, my gut completely knew this guy was not the right fit, but I was so adamant because no one really took my calls. Like, no, we're going to make it work. But like you said, it's so important to also question them. Are they the right partner for you? Because if I listened to my gut, I would not have even wasted my time. And it was like six months of delay for our product launch. So I think that's super important. And also, you know, you guys have done so well so early in the business. So I'd love to kind of hear how you thought about the product launch. I think you guys went straight into retail starting out. Yeah. So with that two years of product development, it's not just like sitting and waiting for the cereal to come out of the machine. It was also laying that strategy. For us, we set 
four years out of, hey, what does a really successful brand launch look like for us? What does that path of discovery look like for consumers? The analogy I think about sometimes is fragrance is always a really interesting one. Before you see it at Macy's, you see it at these cool boutique stores first. So how people discover you, how they engage with your product, and how willing they are to share that product comes from a lot of where they found it, how they heard about it. So Finding the right people to send the product to or the right retailers to launch the product with are really, really important. So for us, we knew, hey, we're here to solve the healthy cereal problem before we even go on like mass. So let's think about healthy cereal. Where do people shop for healthy cereal? So it was Sprouts, Whole Foods, Wegmans, and thinking of those retailers and tackling those first. So we set to tackle those. Once we got a little bit bigger and succeeded in those, now it's how do we tackle Kroger, Albertsons, Costco, and some of these other retailers that we're in. So it was really on just how do we create a plan of attack that will help the brand have the right footing and go deep, and then you go wide. So it was definitely a go deep strategy for a while. And I got to say, we had calls from retailers early on that I said no to. And it's something I talk about a lot is the power of no is huge. And it's really difficult. It's harder to know than it is to say yes sometimes. And in those moments, I knew it wasn't right for the brand to be in these massive retailers that would be capital super intensive on, on the capital side. They would be intensive on just how do we get consumers to know we're there? Because what retailers provide first and foremost is real estate. They give you a shelf to put your product on. They're not directing a customer to your product. They're not there to educate anybody. They're just there to give you shelf space. And so we knew we had to do the education. And the education was easiest in the channels where consumers were already seeking that type of product. So we were really, really surgical about how we went to launch and which domino fell for the next one to fall right after. That's a great point. And I mean, even starting out like Sprouts, Wegmans, those are quite large retailers, right? So how did you even get in front of them early on? You realize that this entire industry is all relationships and finding someone that'll either endorse your product and your brand or you find them directly. So whether it's LinkedIn or seeing that you're connected with someone that knows them and asking for that introduction, it is the same hitting the phones, the same way you look for a coat packer, the same way you look for ingredient suppliers, hitting the phones and finding out if someone will give you the intro. And if not, you find the right broker partner that would have that intro and can facilitate the introduction. So some retailers we went with direct, some we brought on brokers. And you just find the right fit and then you meet these buyers and you sell them in the same way I speak to consumers, the same way I speak to you is this is why we created it. This is what we think we bring to this category. This is the consumer we think we're bringing back to the category and give us a chance. And luckily, a lot of these retailers took a chance and it's proved to be successful on both sides. Yeah. And you mentioned another interview that so much of getting in front of these retailers, you did a really good job with making it a partnership and like really looping them in. Were they involved in like the product development process or where, like, how did you really touch on that? That's a huge thing. And this is it's an insight. I, I don't remember who I heard it from, but the insight is when you have someone touch and become a part of a process, they're so much more involved in its outcome and success. And it's literally physical involvement. So for us, we were like, okay, we're going to send a pilot product, even though we're not maybe necessarily super ready. We'll let them know it's a super rough version of what we think it is. These are the improvements we're hoping for. We'd love your take. And once people feel like they've given their take, they're on that journey with you. They're on the train. They want to ride and they want to see the success. And everyone also wants to have ownership over your success in a way, right? There are retailers that are like, I did that for three wishes. And we want them to have that. And we want them to feel that. And so early days, it was, you know, we'd bring whatever flavors we were working on. And to this day, we bring up flavors new, whether they're seasonals or, or core flavors that we introduce. What do you think? What are your consumers saying? We'll send them a sample of an early development version of it and say, do you like it? What changes would you make? Is there anything you'd refine on packaging? Are you happy with it? Are you seeing trends or claims that you'd like for us to reflect in our R&D of our product? And so just having people feel like they're a part of that process is a humongous part of it. Yeah. And I actually haven't heard that from anyone. So I appreciate you sharing that because it's such a unique perspective. And it's like, why wouldn't they want to be a part of it? So I love that you guys brought them in. So I know you launched, I believe you guys launched one, was it like October 2019? So right before COVID, you guys ended up really growing significantly during COVID. So tell me more about how that time frame was, because for any brand, it's kind of like an oh shit moment, but ended up working out for you guys. Yeah. So we started late October 9, 2019. And a lot of our first like couple of months in business, 
Ian and I would personally demo our product in stores on the weekends to have people try and buy into it, all of our local stores that we could find. And that was great. And then COVID made us really have to think about how do we get this product into more mouths that are going to endorse it and help the product really sell. So we started thinking of different fun, creative marketing things. One thing we did was, okay, the problem is we can't demo anymore because no one's going into store. Or if they are, they're running in, grabbing bread and running out. Nobody's here to like take their mask down to take a cup of cereal and then and then move again. And so we were look, we're just sitting here just like aggravated at the whole situation. And we're like, okay, our driveway is a U-shaped driveway on this like pretty busy road. We're like, what if we just set up a sampling, mask, tongs, glove, the whole nine, and we just have people sample our driveway. They're in our local community. Maybe that'll spread and it'll be the 10 people, no 10 people. And so we did that. And so we hosted this little driveway taste test and people were so excited to just get out of their houses. This was the era when everyone was just aimlessly driving just to not sit at home within their four walls. Yeah. And so we had a pretty decent outcome and Ian just grabbed some, captured some content and we sent it to our local papers and eventually just like hiked its way up to USA Today and then it went to Fox. And we had a three-minute hit on Fox News National during the heat of the pandemic when everyone's sitting at home and just watching TV. And it was like our biggest sales day and maybe even to this day. Oh my gosh. It was incredible. And all we did was just like think of a creative idea that cost us zero dollars to execute and which is a creative way. And so we've kind of gone about it and we've continued to do similarly interesting creative things that cost us not much, but really leave people with a feeling about a brand because- To create that brand loyalty, there has to be some attachment, whether it be your product or the messaging that they really resonate with. So that's been really fun as one side of it. And then the other part of COVID is you've realized everyone was sitting at home with their kids now and they had to feed them food. And I think the first six weeks, first nine weeks, everyone's like, all right, we're going to eat pizza. We're going to be home for a couple of weeks. Then life's going to go back to normal. And I think once people realize that, okay, this is kind of going to be here for a while, they went back to seeking healthier alternatives, which was perfect for us. And so at this point, we're in a lot of really great retailers. We're fully omni-channel, so you could buy us online. And during COVID, where online wasn't as ton of a focus, we relaunched a whole new website in six weeks. We really doubled down on Amazon, and we were able to focus in all of these areas where we knew the eyeballs were and where consumers really had intent to purchase. That really proved to be successful. But another part that was really interesting is the peak of COVID, you saw people running into grocery stores and just wiping shelves clean. You couldn't keep product on shelves. This was a really good opportunity for us where retailers didn't have inventory. And we said, okay, I know you don't have your standard inventory on shelves. I have product in my warehouse. Would you be willing to give my brand a try? Wow. And they're like, yeah. And we're like, all right, great. Let's give it a try. And the product sold through and the repeat was great. And I was like, there we go. You gave us the chance and and here we are delivering on that chance. And so just figuring out ways to constantly be creative in all different aspects of the business, I think is so important. Oh my gosh, you guys are like a case study for just continuously being creative from the beginning of the business to now. And I'm curious, did you have any supply chain issues just to even meet the demand when you guys were selling so much during COVID? So that's funny. Glad you brought that up. Supply chain feels like the forever thing since we've launched. It's like it's, some, it's the only thing you hear about in the news most days. Something really important I think we learned on the agency side was there are things you know, and it's most important to know what you don't know. And for us, I knew I was not a supply chain person. I didn't go study it in school. I don't have a certification. I can give you a rough estimate on what I think good numbers are, but it's the first hire I had outside of myself and my husband was bringing on someone that specializes in supply chain. And she was able to quickly analyze, hey, these are all your weeks of sell through. This is your typical growth. This is what the plan should be like for the remainder of the year or the next whatever, 12 weeks, whatever it is. And investing in that has been a real savior for us and making sure I have someone that thinks about those things and whose sole job is like, I can bring in the customers all day and I can make sure they're excited and interested. But if I don't have the supply and the supply chain set up, that's a crumbling skyscraper. Oh my gosh. So that was a really important one for us. So extremely grateful for her. Yeah. And you guys have like multiple SKUs. Like I can't even imagine handling that myself. <laughs> like one SKU and I'm like all over the place. Like, all right, did this come and everything? So that makes a lot of sense. And did your co-packer have capacity to kind of support this growth during COVID? Were they still open? Like how was that experience? Yeah. I mean, food was operating business as usual. And so 
keeping that open line of communication and understanding if there are any issues in that supply chain on their side and how do we optimize on our side and how do we pace things out properly. So I think it's just always being able to be that nimble and adjust it and know when we have to turn our knobs a certain way internally and just weather the storm. But yeah, is there like an issue on the supply chain side every day? Yeah, sure. A truck breaks down or a warehouse can't find some. It's just like never ending, but that's the nature of having a product-based business. It's true. And actually knowing that gives me a lot of comfort when like shit hits a fan. I'm like, everyone, you're not alone. Yeah. It's like just how it is, whether it's like your fulfillment center or whatever. So you mentioned like your company is always doing creative things that are nimble, that really help the growth of your business. It's so different going from like zero to hundred to like then doubling your business as you're a little bit bigger. So is there anything you guys have recently done that was super budget friendly that really moved the needle for your business now that you are a little bit more established? We've done so many fun things. Well, I'll give a couple good examples. The ones that are real fuzzy and warm and fun. One of them was we were launching our Cocoa Skew again during a really bad news cycle in June of 2020, probably. Yeah. And we're like, how do we get people to know we have a delicious Cocoa Skew? And so we were having, we we're just like doing this whole tissue session of ideation of what are we going to do? And so we thought about what if we reunite the cast of the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from the 70s? And it was a scavenger hunt of the internet. And we got Veruca Salt, who's Julie, and she's the loveliest grandmother, lives in England. We got Charlie, who's Peter, and he's a veterinarian in upstate New York. We got Mike TV, who is Paris and a real estate agent in LA. And we were able, we sent them, we called them all. And we're like, hey, okay, crazy idea. I know you don't want to be associated with being a child star, but we have this cocoa product and we know nobody would endorse chocolate better than you guys. If we send it to you, if you like it, can you send us a video of you endorsing it? And so they all got it. They all loved it. And they all sent us the cutest video and we stitched together this piece and it got some really great pickup and I think created that emotional like, oh, those are the child stars that I loved from that movie, this brand. Like it was such a good, fun halo for the brand. And then one other one that we did last year was really fun. So Ian went to Syracuse University and they had this star basketball player who also happens to be the coach's son. And last year they allowed for the first time in history of college sports, you can now have an athlete endorse a product for money or for whatever it is. And they never got paid before this, right? And so finally they could endorse products. So within minutes of this regulation going up, Ian's already calling the school and like getting his way to this player and his mom and who's now his manager. And we basically did our version of a Wheaties box and did this orange box, which happens to be the school's color. And we had the star buddy, which I think it's this that box right there. Yeah, I love it. You can't see it, but I'll show it to you. But we had him endorse it. And up in Syracuse, he's like the local celebrity all-star athlete. But what was so cool is within a week, we were able to script, produce, shoot, and air a commercial. It was the first commercial oh, wow. that started a college athlete. And it was also the first box of cereal that's, that had a college athlete. And then we basically took that box and that flavor to a really great local retailer, which happens to be Wegmans and is a great account of ours. And they leaned in with this box so heavy. They started setting up basketball hoops and TVs and structures of the cereal. And so we were able to have all of this outsized display space that we would have otherwise probably never gotten because we did this really fun activation. And for us, the effort and the cost was so minimal. And what we got out of it was so, I mean, we had Pete Davidson holding this box during peak dating Kim Kardashian. No it was like a whole way. thing. So <laughs> it was really fun. And it took us really, I mean, was there a ton of effort to get it done? Sure. But was it anything crazy? And did we have to pay a big athlete? No, we were able to do it startup style. And I think that was really, really fun as well. I love it. And it seems like you and your husband are the ones that are coming up with this, these like creative ideas, but how you guys are growing this business together, how are your roles differentiated? And when do you guys like come together? What do you divide and conquer? Yeah. I mean, we're together on everything. I really take all of the operating. He does not like, that is my kingdom. Do not even step into <laughs> it. 
no, but there's, I mean, everything is a complete open conversation. What was helpful, the agency helped us identify what each of us was really good at. And it kind of helped us carve out lanes. So everything on the marketing side, Ian handles everything on the operation side, I handle. But it's not to say that I don't run some of the things I do on the ops side by Ian and vice versa. So there's plenty of ideas we'll throw out and we'll, we'll learn to kill and say, okay, that's not right for the brand or I don't really see where that's going. And similarly, you know, when we develop new product or what that looks like or price structure, any of those things. So we're really involved in both parts, but we know what each of us does well and we kind of stick to that. And I'm curious, you know, my husband's also an entrepreneur. We don't work together, but I'm always talking about business, probably more because of me. He probably is open to talking about other stuff, but there's always like things in my mind. So how is conversation in your household? I mean, I know you guys have two young kids. Like, are you always talking about business? Because it's... Oh, always. Always. We'll be on like, we're like, oh, romantic date night, great dinner, candlelight. And I'm like, what do you think about this flavor, Ian? But this is our lives. It's not... Yeah. I feel so lucky to do what I do. I don't ever feel like Ugh, I can't wait for 5.01 p.m. to shut my computer off. Although some days I'm like, I can't wait to go to sleep. But for the most part, we love what we do and we do it with so much heart that it's just really enjoyable for us to talk about it. And so we'll we'll be on like car rides to the grocery store and we'll talk about it or at, at a dinner. It's just, we love it. Yeah, no, totally, totally. That makes sense. And I'm curious, we haven't touched upon this yet. I'd love to get your perspective on how you guys really thought about fundraising. I think you guys bootstrapped early on and then brought in investors. So I think that's helpful for anyone listening in today, like just to kind of get your mindset around how you approached it. I always say fundraising is one of my least favorite parts of any and specifically this business, but it is a capital going into retails capital intensive, but that doesn't mean it's for every business. I think for us, or for me. So I didn't enjoy fundraising because it felt like you had to make a thousand phone calls to have all of this rejection. And it really is, it's painful. There were, I remember there was a week where it was just rejection after rejection. And I was like, Ian, I need a break for like three, four days. Like, I can't do these phone calls. It's literally like eating at my soul. And I'm like starting to lose faith in myself by just hearing these no's. And I think that's a big part of it. But at the end, it all worked out. And this was early days before the product was really in stores. It's just when we had some POs. So I think for a lot of people, it was like a really big chance where now people, we get calls all the time about it. And I'm just like, no, I'm good. Thank you. But the bigger part, and as we see a lot of people raise a lot of money, corporate governance becomes a real thing. And the larger you get and the more money you raise, then you have a board of directors that you answer to. Then you have, I like to think of it as a shot clock. You have X amount of time until these people feel like they need to see a return out of your brand. So you start to get pressure to make decisions that you otherwise may not have had to make. And I don't really love that. I love that we became entrepreneurs to to do what we love to do and to have freedom and build a beautiful brand. And so I didn't want to continue seeking capital, even though that does give us some oxygen and flexibility and things. I rather run it a little tighter and and be more considerate in how we spend the capital because at the end, I know it gives us freedom that is so, so important to me. I think that's a really priceless thing. And I think that's that's a thing that founders have started to think about a little bit more. The other really interesting trend on the fundraising side is people have understood that strategics don't necessarily just want to acquire brands anymore. They want to acquire real businesses. And that means a business that chains finally, that a business that that chases profitability and can sustain itself on its own and not have to, you know, wait for the next raise to hopefully become profitable in six years. I think that's become a lot less sexy. I think being a real business is is the new it thing. So that's something we've focused on since day one. So continuing to just do that. Yeah. So I actually did not know that. So did you just do one fundraising round and was it mostly with angels or? Yeah, it was basically a seed and we did it with friends and family and, you know, very, very few VC, small, small, small VCs. And for us, it was more about having people that believe in us and want to support us and less about like, hey, when are, you know, how are things going? Or how do you, when are you raising again? It was just like, we're here for the wishing grads and we're here to be on board with whatever you choose to do. And that's been really enjoyable because nobody as a founder should feel like they, you know, half their job is answering to investors. That's not so fun. I'm here to focus on building the brand. And that's, that's been the focus. 
That's great. And you validated that like early on, because I think people think about this after the fact. So I'm glad you're bringing this up. And you guys also funded it because sometimes I feel like people go a little too early to investors. And I believe from my understanding, you guys kind of did like an MVP, right? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? I think it'd be helpful. Yeah, we floated the idea of raising really early when it was just an idea. But I think it's really difficult for investors to get behind something that you can't taste or touch when it's food. And so we really wanted to make sure the product was as close to being done as possible. So we started sharing it with some investors a little earlier, but most of them kind of when it was done right before we launched or right around the launch. And we were just, we would send the product, we'd talk through the strategy, we would do the standard pitch that anyone else does. But we bootstrapped it up until that point, which is pretty expensive and, and, you know, not, not everyone could do it. So we realized how lucky we were to be able to sustain and fund it up until the point of being ready to launch. But I think with food, it's it's not just selling a dream. People need to taste it and, and fall in love with it. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I want to go into something. You talked a little bit about having a family and how the first question we had about you being calm as a business leader and how that's similar to just being a mom and having children. And also there's never a right time to start a business. There's never a right time to have kids. I love all this. So you actually said in, a, in another interview that like the past year, when you first launched the business, it was a year of the pandemic. You had, I think one, I know you now have two younger sons, but I have two, yeah. you hit seven figures and you're running, right? This high growth startup, not just like a normal startup. You just mentioned just like how incredible the journey is. My question for you is, there's a lot of questions here, but how are you managing? Like, how do you structure your life to kind of be the operator, CEO, still an involved wife, still an involved mother and kind of manage this life, especially as I don't have kids yet, but I'm always trying to get words of wisdom and realities of what that looks like. Yeah. Someone the other week was like, you guys got it all figured out. I'm like, I'm so happy. That's what you think it looks (laughs) like. That is so lovely. And yeah, I found out I was pregnant with our second a week before shutdown in the world. No part of me was like, it was late, late February. It was like February 20 something. And no part of me was like, oh, how cool. I'm going to run this brand, be pregnant during a pandemic, grow it during a pandemic. Like none of the, I didn't know any of those things would happen. So it's just like, okay, this is the situation. I just have to figure out how to navigate it. And the rest was history. But I think for me, the cliches are cliches for a reason, but it takes a village is so true. So whether it's the balance of of my husband or something we did when we moved, we live in the burbs now. And so when we were leaving the city, we knew we were going to travel a ton. We knew work was going to be intense. And Ian asked me if I wanted to have my parents move in with us. And I was like, Ian. I've spent the last decade running away from my parents and establishing independence, but it was the right thing to do then. So we have the support of my family. So we're able to really focus on the business and travel to see buyers and travel to do shows or whatever we need to do. And having that support is really invaluable. Making sure my kids are well taken care of so I can focus on the business is such a big part of it. And then just knowing when to balance and and knowing when to shut off and learning to prioritize. I think priorities are a really big part of it. And having my own internal mental cue of like, okay, this is less important than being at my kid's recital or, okay, I really need to get this done. You figure it out. There's no easy way around it. There are times that are more stressful than others. And this is like something I say all the time. It really, my answer will depend on the day that you catch me. Like some days I'll be like, oh my God, don't start a business. It's horrible. Run. Or some days I'm like, it's, daisies and roses and I love it. And so it's different every day. But there are moments where my kids turn to me and they're like, mom, you're working. Can you put your phone down? And I'm like, whoops, sorry. I'm so sorry. Or So you figure out when you need to redirect attention where. I love that. I do think it takes a village. And sometimes people think I've had friends who started businesses, have kids, they didn't have any help. And they're like, how do people do it? I'm like, girl, like people have support, whether it's family or you hire someone depending on your situation. Like, so I'm glad you talk about that because you can't do it all. Literally. Nobody could do it all. There are so many hours in a day and you just have to figure out what those things are. And look, sometimes I have important calls and I have to take my kids to the pediatrician and I'm like, yeah, I'm so sorry, but like that, my priority right now is my kid. And other times it's like, Hey kid, put on YouTube and watch it by yourself for three hours because my priority is work. So you just figure those things out. But having support is everything. And it's not just support in in terms of your children. There are plenty of entrepreneurs that don't have kids and it's support in your business. Maybe there are parts that you you can't do all the lifting by yourself and it's okay 
to know you need help and it's okay to ask for help. And I think that's the biggest thing for me also as we talk about whether it's investor phone calls or running the business. It's okay to know that you can't handle everything. You don't know everything all of the time. And it's okay to learn new things and ask for help. And I think something that's really wonderful about the food community or the consumer packaged goods community is everyone is willing to share those tips and tricks. And we all have gone to war in our, our own ways and we've all figured things out the hard way or or the easy way. And sharing those things and passing on that that good karma has really been a fun thing in this industry. So don't be shy to ask. You never know the answer you're going to get. I love that. And that's actually something I think about a lot for myself. Like I'll get very stressed about certain things. And I'm like, Yasmin, you don't need to have all the answers. Like reach out to somebody, ask a question, go on forums. Like I need to constantly remind myself that because it's too much pressure when you're dealing with so many things. And it's like, it's a lot. So I love that you did that. It's a complete Rome wasn't built in a day. I mean, it's again, all of these cliches are so true for all of these things. You have to stand the test of time. Like, they're <laughs> all so, they're there. Embrace them. Let them happen. Yeah. And then I always love when I hire someone, it's like their superpower and they're killing it. I'm like, my God, why did I not bring you on to help us earlier? So it's just also fun to see people in their superpower do it. But I'd love to close on one last question. What would you say are maybe one of the proudest moments in your life, whether it's personal or professional over the past few years? I don't even think it's one big win. I think it's just been a journey of a thousand little wins. Okay, so we'll go, we'll divide business and children because they're two different things. But on the business side, we're at a really fun stage right now where we'll see random celebrities that we love post a product organically. Like seeing Lizzo eat this product over the weekend. I love it. <laughs> I was like fan. I'm like, Liz, yes. Or having people send us an episode of The Bachelor where they're grocery shopping in a store and she's like, this is my favorite cereal. And I was like, I did not pay anybody to say that. Thank you so much. So those little wins are so fun, the little social proof, but also seeing our product in market. And every time I walk into a grocery store, I pinch myself. I'm like, I get to make cereal that's on millions of tables in the United States that people are eating. Like I try to think about like, what would 15 year old Margaret think of Margaret today? Like I would have blown my own self away. So trying to really stay grounded in that and remembering that like all of these things are a little win and it's not always like you don't have to, it's not about accomplishing everything. It's enjoying the journey and not just thinking about the destination, such a big part of it. So those little wins are always really fun and just seeing the brand grow at a really nice healthy pace has been the big win for me. And then just like seeing my kids grow and they're just the coolest humans. And I feel so lucky to be their mom, similarly to how I feel so lucky to be behind the brand. Experiencing all of those things just makes me so, so grateful. It's like so cheesy and sappy. And I'm just like, you know what? It's fine. I don't even care. It's true. I got goosebumps. No, it's so beautiful. And it's real. It's real. And yeah, I'm looking forward to experiencing that one day. But that is really cool. Also from the business front, like to be out there in the world and putting in the reps that you start seeing celebrities do it. You know, that takes reps and work. It doesn't happen like overnight. So that's just cool to be in that position where you're seeing it out there. I mean, to this day, when I introduce myself and people are like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I have a, you know, a breakfast cereal brand. And I just go straight into like, oh, three wishes. It's a healthy, like, and some people are like, no, no, no we know it. We eat Crazy. it. We love it. And I'm like, <laughs> you know me? That's so cute. Like, you forget. And in my mind, it's still like my my little baby. And so it's, it's really fun when people do know you. And it's not shameful when people don't. That's just a new consumer that you can turn on to your product and educate them about. And you just, that's another opportunity. So I think I'm very lucky. Amazing. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. I'm so excited about everything you guys continue to bring in this world. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.